Today I'm going to make somewhat of an argument, um, but I'm not, I'm not going to belabor the point today. Most of you are credo-baptist, you know what that means, that's just believer's baptism. Credo, belief, baptist, baptism, believer's baptism. Which means that you're persuaded that scripture teaches believers are baptized. Once a person is converted, then they are baptized. And so I'm going to deal with that quickly in a couple ways in in which it relates to why a Baptist would reject infant baptism. And then then I'm just going to deal with several just issues. You know, just there's always just kind of connected issues to think through. Um, You know, no doctrine is formed in an isolated box just to be purely examined in and of itself in its own right. It always is connected to other doctrine and, and other than pastoral thoughts and issues for the life of the church. And so um, that's what this is today. A short argument and then other just pastoral considerations for our church. Matthew chapter 28, let's read again. We're going to read a couple passages, but beginning here, Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How? By baptizing them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we want to honor what you are doing in baptism. This is what you have given to your church as a meaningful gift to us of your grace. And we pray that we would honor it according to your words. And we pray that you would help us have wisdom, charity, and love to find ways to work with one another, to live with one another, to be charitable to one another, to be patient and forbear with one another in ways that we might disagree about this. And so we pray for your help. Give me wisdom, our elders' wisdom, as we lead together. And uh, would you help us to walk humbly before you and before one another? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, make disciples by baptizing them. Now, I'll say this in a minute again, but it's important that we understand that the disagreement about baptism isn't just about whether to be baptized or not baptized. We're all for baptism. We're all for obeying Jesus when he says, make disciples by baptizing them. Okay? We're all on the same page about that. But if I was going to make a short argument in regards to uh, believer's baptism, which I've done in the past, years ago, um, it would start here. It would start here. All of the baptisms in the New Testament are believer's baptisms. Um, All of the baptisms in the New Testament are believers' baptisms. So when Jesus says here, make disciples, and this is is post-resurrection, right? 
And then, and he says, by baptizing them. And then you go to Acts, which is not long after this moment. And in Acts chapter 2, and I want you to turn there. Acts chapter 2, remember Peter preaches the gospel in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41, who was baptized. So those who received His word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, so the point here being in verse 41, those who received the word were baptized. That's believer's baptism, okay? And it doesn't stop there. When you, if you just fast forward to Acts chapter 8, verse 36, the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip, and the Ethiopian eunuch are carriaging along in, in 8.36, and as they were going along, the road came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And uh, this precedes him hearing and reading the passage of Scripture about Jesus. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer, you have a believer's baptism. If you fast forward to, if you just look over to Acts chapter 9, verse 18, this is the Apostle Paul. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. In other words, in the conversion of the Apostle Paul, his eyes are opened and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Um, It's important to see uh, when you're thinking about baptism that Scripture connects baptism closely to conversion. It's not something you just do whenever. Um, generally speaking, in Scripture, the pattern is you believe, you receive the Word of God, and you are baptized. I could go on with a few other examples, but the point, the, the, main, the main point being all of the baptisms in the New Testament are believers' baptisms. Okay? Two, infant baptism never appears explicitly in the Bible. Right? I mean, and this is what, if you're arguing for... Um, uh, and, and there's nothing there that any person who actually baptizes infants would disagree about that statement. They would completely agree with that. Um, that it's never actually explicitly mentioned in the Bible. And so Baptists have said for years, huh, they, you know, this is how Baptists often say things. But, you know, how, well, how could there even be an argument for infant baptism when infants in baptism never appear in any paragraph of the Bible? <laughs> Well, it's true. That is, your, that is your strongest argument, I think. That is your strongest argument. Um, there's maybe some particular things to say about the covenant, but the nature of the new covenant, but that really is your strongest argument. There is no example. And so, um, 
Infant baptism never appears explicitly in the Bible. I can't take you to a passage of Scripture. I can't say turn uh, to a passage of Scripture where it says this. And then thirdly, I would say this. There's no explicit reference in the New Testament that circumcision has become New Covenant infant baptism. Okay, so... I'll talk about this next week, but here's the thing. If you want to understand what infant baptism is, the way to understand it is just to understand what circumcision is. So to a person who believes infant baptism is uh, important for children, then the way to understand that is just to understand Old Covenant circumcision and the New Covenant sign being baptism, and that also applied to infants as well. But, there is no explicit reference in the New Testament that has circumcision, uh, that, exp- that says circumcision has become New Covenant infant baptism. Right? There is no statement like that. So, there you go. I could say one other thing, maybe, about that some Reformed Baptists, though I reject this, I don't think this is actually correct, but if you're trying, if you're a Baptist and you're trying to do everything you can to make sure no one becomes a paedo-Baptist ever, I love you, Joe, then what you'll do is you'll come to some conclusions um, that... You know, when I talk to people in sermons, like, that only just happens because of our love, you know? Like, no one that I talk to in sermons is just, well, the majority of the time is just, like, grossly embarrassed, you know? It's just, it's just us living life together. And I know that you're not used to a shepherd ever talking to anybody during those sermons, but... I don't know what else to say about it. But if you're committed to, if, you're, if, if your whole thing is committed to making sure no one ever becomes a, a, someone who baptizes infants, then you're going to draw conclusions from Scripture to protect that, whether it really fits all the data of Scripture or not. If you have an a priori, wow, highfalutin, commitment to making sure no one ever becomes an infant Baptist, then you will find ways to do that. And one of the ways, I guess I could say, um, for some, not me, but for some is, they would say there's a distinction in the New Covenant from the Old Covenant, that the New Covenant only includes um, believers, true converts, whereas in the Old Covenant there was the inclusion of both believer and unbeliever alike, in particular children. Okay. And I... I disagree with that. I, I do think that the New Covenant has a visible and an invisible church, and I'm still a Reformed Baptist. So, the summary is, Baptists conclude that with only positive, exa- positive examples of believers' baptism, no examples of infant baptism, no explicit mention of in- infant baptism, and no explicit mention of circumcision giving way to baptism, including infants, that it, therefore, is not biblical. And here 
is my point. If that is you, then you should live by that conviction. You should live by that conviction. And you should live by that conviction, and you should hold that conviction strongly. That's me. I've lived by that conviction since I became a Christian. It's more important to me now. My understanding of what's happening in baptism is more important to me now. But my conviction about the timing of baptism, so my conviction about the timing of baptism has not changed, but it is less important to me. So at one and the same time, baptism is far more important to me. But it is less important to me that we divide in a local church over baptism. And I know that that sounds like an oxymoron, but I don't know what to tell you. I don't know how to explain to you how that's true and how that can happen, Um, but it's true. Now, there you go. I told you everything you already knew about baptism, so let's talk about other pastoral considerations, okay? We all hold the Word of God in high esteem. We all hold the Word of God in high esteem. And I just want to say, and one of the reasons I keep insulting Baptists about in this process, even though I'm a Baptist, is because I'm trying to make room for those who disagree with you, and I'm also trying to help you hold your conviction, though strongly, more humbly. Okay? That's what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to get you to change your position. I haven't changed my position. But I'm trying to get you to hold it more humbly. And this is one of the places where Baptists in particular love to say, we're the ones who hold to the Scripture, and the other side just doesn't hold to the Scripture, and so we are the ones who really are the fruit of the Reformation, and the other ones hold to tradition and a lower view of Scripture than us. Now, in many cases, is that true about many things? Somebody's wrong in the way they're holding a high view of Scripture. Right? But just need to get over ourselves and our haughty-mindedness about how we think about how high we hold the view of Scripture. You know, give me ten minutes with you and let me ask some questions about your life and I'll talk to you about how high you don't hold a view of Scripture in your marriage and with your children and in your workplace and with your money. We can get there real quick. So don't go on and on and on about how high your view of Scripture is. You know what I'm saying? Well, if you don't, try to figure it out. It's important that we understand that both sides of the corn coin are seeking to hold Scripture in high esteem. There has to be charity and patience and forbearance and love on this point. We agree on baptism. Pado-Baptists and Credo-Baptists agree that the Lord commands baptism. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if we have faith, then we will agree on God's promises to our children, even. 
we agree that we hold the Word of God in high esteem. And so let's be careful about just positioning ourselves in when it comes to this as the ones who have the corner on truth and other people just don't care about what Scripture says. And I will tell you that paedo-baptists tend to be more charitable to Baptists in the way they handle this than Baptists tend to be towards credo-baptists. And I would say, I think Josh and Anna have been more charitable to us than we have been to them for many years. Both sides, of course, can be haughty and dismissive needlessly under the guise of, well, we're the ones who just know what Scripture says and everyone else is just wrong. And I can't emphasize how important it is. We're talking about an issue that has been debated and divided over and fought over for hundreds of years by godly men far godlier than us. And when you have something like that, let's just not pull the, well, it's just so clear, you're an idiot card. Of course, both sides can be haughty. So, you say, well, Pastor Josh, have you just given up, you've thrown in the towel, given into the spirit of the age, that we just have to agree with everything and not divide over anything now? I do appreciate the cynicism. Have you ever known me to be unwilling to divide on all of the issues and battles that we are fighting today? Have you ever? For example, homosexuals who are unrepentant are not admitted to church membership. It's the gospel dividing and excluding. No issue there. But isn't it interesting that the cynical-minded would be pushed to have humility, being pushed to humble themselves and grow in love place the blame on their teacher so that they don't have to do it. Is that interesting? The irony of that kind of rigidity is that it's more likely to end up either in a cold, independent, fundamental Baptist church with no heart, or to end up in a megachurch that is dogmatic about baptism, but likely compromised on far more important issues. Now, back to the point. Some anecdotal testimony. I, I came from a Baptist seminary. Um, but it was pretty interesting that all of the best books, and I'm trying to model, I'm trying to model charity across the line here. Right? And so in order to do that, I have to insult my own crew a bit. I came from a Baptist seminary, but it was pretty interesting that all of the best books that we read in seminary were written by Presbyterians. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to overstate a point as if one is always better at theology than the other. All I'm wanting to say is 
that at that time, it helped me see the shallowness of saying, we're the ones who really care about the Word of God, and you don't. I'm like, why are we reading all of your books in seminary? In other words, writing off my Presbyterian brothers and sisters as liberals and as allegorists and as sacramentalists was not just schismatic and not just uncharitable, but was actually slander. None of it was true. We're all seeking to hold to the Word of God in high esteem. So what is needed is for us to find a way to honor one another's commitment to Scripture, not to tear down where honor should be given. Okay? What is needed is for us to honor one another's commitment to Scripture, not to tear down when honor should be given, at least at the point of getting rid of the ridiculous slander of each other that we're the ones committed to Scripture and we're the ones committed to Scripture and we're the ones committed to Scripture and I don't know. Secondly, we all believe that baptism is something that God is doing and not just we ourselves. This is actually probably going to be a new thought for you because the way you think about baptism is you think about baptism as if it's just something that you are doing. In baptism, I obey God. In baptism, I go down into the water. In baptism, you know, this is just something I do in order to obey Jesus in the Great Commission and identify myself with Christ in His church. And that's how we've generally just thought about baptism. And we have very rarely thought that baptism is actually something God is doing. It's true. That we are doing something in obedience to God. But that's not sufficient to understand the whole truth of baptism. Baptism is a sign and seal of our redemption. And as a sign and seal, it is something that God is doing. God is making His people known. God is bringing forth the elect from before the foundation of the world in baptism. It's amazing. God is revealing His chosen people. God is witnessing to us whom He has marked as His own. God is identifying with His people in baptism. God is putting them on public display for the world and His church. Baptism is glorious because it's something that God is doing. God marked Israel with circumcision. God marks us with baptism. God gives the sign and seal. To be honest, I just don't think where I've come from over the years has emphasized that point enough. And we need to restore the importance of that reality that God is doing something in baptism to the church. Now this. Flip back to Acts Acts chapter 2. I think this is going to be really, really important. And I'll just say it, I think for us to walk together in a kind of walk together in a kind of unity and love, and you realize, let me just say that, let me just acknowledge, somebody's wrong about baptism. (laughs) Somebody's wrong. Probably creasy, but somebody's wrong about. No, somebody's wrong. 
actually what is important for you, many of you, um, who are credo Baptists, to actually be able to say, I could actually be wrong about this. You know? I could actually be wrong about this. That's going to be really important for you to be able to say, I could actually be wrong about this. Somebody's wrong. Somebody's right. And either or through time as the church matures in its understanding of Scripture, all that Ephesians 4 is the whole body, cosmic body across the world grows up in maturity and truth and love. Maybe there will be more unity on the point. Maybe there won't be. Maybe we'll just find out in glory. And, but the point being, somebody is wrong. And it could be me. It could be me. Now, I do believe this point right here, that was kind of an important side point, but this point right here is very, very important for us to live in unity across um, our convictions about baptism. I wrote this down. We all must believe that God makes promises to our children. We all must believe that God makes promises to our children. Now, I've said this a handful of times to our church. Um, I really have said it multiple times here or there uh, in regards to this. I don't want anything to do with a theology that makes the new covenant worse than the old covenant in regards to our children. I just don't. Everything in the New Covenant is better than the Old. Say, well, so what was the promise to the children of Israel in the Old Covenant? Genesis 17.7 to Abraham. And I will establish My covenant between Me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Abraham had hope for his children and for generations to come from his children and his children's children that they would believe God and it would be credited to them as righteousness. God promised the blessing of salvation to His children. Now look at Acts 2.39. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off. This means not just for Jews, but Gentiles. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself Now, some will say, well, yes, of course, there's hope for anyone who believes, children, Gentiles, etc. That's all this is saying. And I say, that's not all this is saying. This is covenantal language. This was the language spoken to Abraham. God is pleased. 
to primarily work through families and households in the building of His church. Generation to generation. Now I know that's hard for you because you just think about individuals. You're an American. Americans think about individuals. Done us well. Look at the nature of the family today. A bunch of individuals. But in the world of Scripture, God doesn't just think individually. He thinks about households, families. He works through households and families. And He's been pleased to do this for a long time. That's why we have, I think, five examples in the book of Acts of somebody was baptized and their household. That's why we have so much teaching on the family unit and how a family unit functions and the raising of children in Scripture because God thinks in terms of families and households, not just merely individualistically like we do. But this is covenantal language. And the point here is that there is hope for the children of believing Israel who is coming to believe and be baptized in this moment, the Jews, and there is hope. For believing Gentiles and by implication, their children. The promise is for you and your children. It's covenantal language. Covenantal language through families. And it's a promise. Do you see the word promise? And this is just a repetition of something the Old Testament says many times in covenant language to children of believing families. So, if the Old Covenant promised something to Abraham's children, first of all, who are Abraham's children? Those who have the faith of Abraham. Now, if there was a promise to his offspring, if there was a promise of saving blessing to his offspring for generations to come, in history bears out that the Abrahamic uh, covenant and Abraham's commission in Genesis chapter 12, where he would be the father of many nations. Many nations would be blessed through him. History bears out that that's true. Why? Because God actually keeps his covenant to children and children's children and beyond. And so when you read this, that's the world of Scripture. Now, you can have a way to come up with it to mean something else, but you have to understand that's the world of Scripture. God works in covenant. 
And he works primarily through families and households, not just random individuals. Of course, he does save individuals. Of course, sometimes he saves an individual and the whole household doesn't come to saving faith. But that doesn't negate the point. Stop negating what's true by always finding an exception. Stop it. Embrace and submit to yourself to God's ways. There's always an exception. But stop it. Submit to God. Don't use exceptions for excuses to everything that's true and right and good. Okay? It's all we ever do because we hate the authority of God's law. Is All we ever do is try to come up with an exception so that we don't have to obey Him. Stop. His ways are household and family. So, if the promises were to Abraham and his offspring, that they would have faith and be sons of Abraham with faith in the Old Covenant. And that these promises no longer apply in the New Covenant to our children. Do you hear what you're saying? What you are saying is the Old Covenant is better than the New Covenant. That post the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord and the expansion of the Gospel across the world through all the Gentile nations in submission to Christ, that the promises for all of the Gentile nations are less and more hopeless than the Old Covenant promises to children. To children! I want you to have hope for your children. I have hope for my children. I have hope in the promises of God for my children. The thought that my children are no different than the children of an unbelieving heathen family is crazy to me. It's crazy. Well, it's just, well, it's just up to whatever's going to happen, happens. It's just so hopeless. The new covenant is better than the old covenant in every single way. Find something that's better in the old covenant and make an argument to me and, and send me an email and, and prove your case that something in the old covenant is better than something in the new. And so the idea that the promise, now you can find a way. If your whole goal is to make sure no one becomes an infant baptizer so you're scared to death of promises to children because that leads them down the road of infant baptism and then liberalism, 
And you can make Scripture say whatever you want it to say. And you can deny the goodness of the new covenant and that it's a better covenant than the old and that the promises wouldn't be lesser to the children of Jesus Christ's church. They would be greater. So, we have to have hope for our children, all of us. You say, well, because you always want to think about the exception, right? You're just dying. Well, you say something about the exception. I almost just don't want to. just so you have to sit under the promise of God and believe it. That's what I'm going to do. Have faith in God. Believe His promises and start there. Start there. I would just say this, a promise is a promise in the general and not to be doubted by its exceptions. We must have hope for our children as we serve God in faith. Okay? We have to have hope for our children. Now, let's talk about this. Where we disagree with one another, and that's going to actually really matter as we think about how to live together across, um, because for the Paedo-Baptists, they're just like, why don't Baptists ever believe have hope for their children. That's what the Paedo-Baptists, why don't Credo-Baptists ever have hope for their children? You know, it's the most frustrating thing to them. They're like, there are promises in the Old Testament. This is an important understanding for us to carry in common with one another, to live together when it comes to baptism. Now, we don't disagree on baptism. What we disagree on, now moving on, Where we will disagree with one another is the time and mode of baptism. The time and mode of baptism. So, here's what's, I think, really important. Because this is how you'll function. If If you're not thinking carefully about yourself, this is how you'll function. The question is not, in order to live together in disagreement, the question is not, can I agree with your wrong position on baptism? The goal isn't to somehow be persuaded of the other person's position. That's not the goal. And sometimes that's kind of how we'll we'll function like that. Can I agree with your position on baptism? Or can I be happy enough with it being reasonable enough to me? That's kind of, we'll function like that. But that's not really how we should be thinking. The question is, how do we live together in one church disagreeing on baptism's timing and mode? When baptism happens and how it's done. That's really the question. How do we live together in one church disagreeing with one another? On baptism's timing and mode. 
Now, I want to consider the mode of baptism for just one moment. Right? The mode of baptism is, you know, you have immersion, sprinkling, pouring, hay. Sprinkling with hay. Now, to many of us, to many of us, this has just been overly simplistic. Well, we've heard the word baptize, and then we think, well, baptizo. It's the Greek word, it's baptizo, and it means immersion. Baptizo. Baptism means immersion. That's. And it's like, that's just enough. That just solves the issue. There's not even any other Scripture to think about. Just one word, that's it. Case closed. We're done. That's how we've tended to think and how we've tended to teach about this in uh, Baptist Christianity in America. And you know what Pado baptists say? They say, well... Except when it doesn't. <laughs> now, most of you have not heard that side of the story. So I just want you to have some humility about how you think about this. Let's just not be overly simplistic. Pick one little thing and drive it home to the nth degree and doesn't matter how much love we forsake while we're right. So that's for next week, though, um, when we talk about infant baptism and try to understand it. But I want you to have some humility as you think about this. The timing of baptism will come next week, but I want to think about the mode of baptism just for a second. And I will tell you that I think the mode of baptism that is the fullest picture of the gospel truths that are happening in the heart and life is immersion. I don't have to make that case just because of the word baptizo. I actually, that's what I think. So you're going to turn in a few passages of your Bible with me because I just want you to have to think about something. Turn to Romans chapter 6. So you're in Acts. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Right? This is where the concepts that are displayed in immersion are written down. Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit. Sorry, I am totally in the wrong book. Here we go. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And we think about the baptism of the Holy Spirit here. And we think, and then we just think, well, 
all the truths of conversion are represented by baptism. And I say, oh, are they? Do you not know what Scripture says? Do you not care about the Bible? Look at Romans 5 5. What's the word used there? What's the word used there, Neil? Poured! This is the baptism of the Spirit. For God's love has been poured into our hearts. So is it just possible that somebody who has done pouring in baptism was actually thinking about the language of Scripture too and might not be a demon? Maybe. Okay, now turn to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. Now, we're in a passage on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Right? This is a great passage of Scripture. I'll remove the heart of flesh, or the heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. This is the work of God in the heart. This is regeneration. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. What does verse 25 say? Sprinkle up! Okay, now what am I doing? The only point I'm making is to try to tell you, help you see that all of the modes of baptism that have been used in the history of the church, and you could go on about sprinkling in the whole sacrificial system about this. I mean, there's a lot more that could be said and how it represents gospel truths. Okay, so let's just can we just can we just see that it's reasonable for someone to emphasize one over the other and that they're all present in Scripture. I prefer immersion as the fullest picture and symbol. But this doesn't mean that someone who uses a different mode is a demon. Because baptizo... Let's not be simple-minded because it usually leads to a lack of charity. It usually leads to a lack of charity. So all of these modes are signs of Gospel truths. Now, no one ever told you that, did they? You know? Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the most respectable men of the last hundred years, in his faithfulness to Scripture and to God's people, I would always commend Martin Lloyd-Jones to you. I would just always commend him to you. He didn't believe the Scriptures emphasized a specific mode of baptism as rigidly as many of us have today. Because his concern was not that we place so much emphasis on the mode, 
but on what baptism signified and sealed. That's why I say, well, if I've only got hay, I'll throw it in your face. Because the emphasis is on the heart and what is being done by God and the person and what it signifies and seals. Here's what he said, and I quote, But, having said that much about who is to be baptized and how such a person person is to be baptized, let us again emphasize the importance of understanding that it is by this means that God has chosen not only to signify but also to seal us our redemption, our forgiveness, the remission of our sins, our union with Christ, our being baptized into Him, and our receiving the Holy Spirit. And thus, God stoops to our weakness, authenticates our faith, gives us assurance and strengthens us, and fortifies us when we are attacked by the devil who tries to tempt us into unbelief. Baptism is God's appointment, and whatever the mode, let us remember the thing that is signified, the thing that is sealed. So practical questions arise. Lots of them. (laughs) Lots of practical questions arise. If we hold the... Uh, if we are credo-baptists, and we are fully convinced, and I want you to be fully convinced of it. My goal is not to get you to doubt your position on baptism. But there's practical questions arise if we're going to live together. Like this. If we're able to find a peaceable way forward as a church, I believe we can. I believe we will. And here's the issue. It gives freedom to one another's conscience to live as they believe the Scriptures teach. The goal is not to convert each other. The goal isn't to have a fight about it. The goal is actually to give freedom in love to one another to live according to one another's conscience as they believe the Scriptures teach. Teach. Now, if you do that, you raise a lot of practical questions. Probably more more than you think. A lot of them. Here's an example. Maybe one of the obvious ones would be this. Do we need to baptize those who come to us to join our church who were baptized as infants in order for them to join our church? That's one of the most obvious questions. But then it gets far more sticky wickedish. Well, what if it was a faithful Pado Baptist church? What if it was a Roman Catholic infant baptism? What if the person doesn't really know if it was faith or not of the parents? Do we receive into membership those who are baptized by sprinkling into a Methodist church? Matt votes two thumbs up. 
Uh, I love you, dear brother. Do we receive into membership those who are baptized in a oneness Pentecostal church where it was not even in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Do you see? This is, I'm just giving you a sampling of the kinds of issues that are raised in finding a way forward together to give freedom to one another's conscience. Now, if the whole church said, no, we're not going to give freedom to one another's conscience, well, then we have a different discussion. But I don't think that's the way we should go. I don't think it's the way we should go. Now, when you hear these questions, especially like someone like someone who was baptized in a Roman Catholic church or Methodist church by sprinkling or whatever, all of us, the vast majority of us come from a church where the only answer was, well, yes, re-baptize them all. You know? Baptize them all. They were never baptized before. They just got wet. I've said that. I've said that to people. I would never say that to anyone again. But I have said that to people. Well, I shouldn't say I wouldn't say that to anyone again. I wouldn't believe it as generally across the board as I used to believe it. And when you hear these questions, what you want to do is you just want to decide right now. Well, this is what I think. This is what our church should do. Establish a policy and just live by the policy. And we might do that on some of these points. We might do that on some of these points. There might be a necessity for us to do that on some of these points. But what I'm trying to get you to see, and this is what I've really been trying to get you to do for the whole decade of my ministry here. You can't hold to truths in a vacuum. You can't hold to truths in the church of Jesus Christ in a vacuum. Truths always mean people. Always, always, always mean people. And what I'm trying to get us to do is to think about people. To love people in the application of these truths. And every single one of you hates corporate bureaucracy and policy that just generalizes everything and everybody's got to fit the mold. Every single one of you. Don't you? You hate it. Because you, you know it never cares for people. Now, in order to be a, a company that grows, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I can sympathize with why you need policy in order to function, you know, at the level that needs functioning. But um, the fact of the matter is, you've all bucked under it. Because you know that it doesn't care about individuals. It can't judge on the basis of individual, just on the basis of policy. And so, where we need to have policy, we should have policy. But where we just need... And and so here's the point. You have been harmed under that. If you've ever worked in a corporate environment, as I have, you've been harmed under that. You just get thrown under the bus for whatever policy, regardless of whatever thing. (laughs) 
Could we try to not do that with people spiritually? Could we try to actually care for people? And there's ways that we could, as a church, adopt policy about baptism unnecessarily when what we really need to do is know the person in front of us. Let me give you an example. Just, I'm just speaking hypothetically. Don't principalize anything I'm saying or assume that I'm using a hypothetical in order to come up with the policy or principle later. I'm just giving you an example. Can you give me that freedom just for a second and not crucify me? Okay. Let's assume that someone is uh, sprinkled in a Methodist church. Okay? And um, they were in a Methodist church. They felt like they believed and they came forward and uh, were baptized. Now, what you think I'm going to say is that we should just accept their baptism and move on. But that's not what I'm going to say. What I'm going to say is now this person actually is really concerned that they, in order to be faithful to Scripture, need to be baptized by immersion and that this was never done properly. And they're very concerned about that. And in that case, I say, well, I would have accepted hay, but... My hay illustration is really helpful. (laughs) It's helpful because it gets away from all of our particulars about water and gets to the heart of the matter. And anyways, and so, so then we baptize them by immersion. Now, that's because that's where that person's at. Let's assume we have someone who um, was a Baptist and was baptized because you realize the danger of some of our conclusions on this is Baptists just end up getting baptized every two years. Let's say they were baptized and they're not real sure whether they were a Christian yet. They They might even feel certain that they weren't a Christian yet when they were baptized. Then what do you do? You know, as a teenager, they were baptized, but they just, they're not, they just, they're pretty certain they weren't a believer yet. Well, okay, let me complicate it further. What if I have a person who, who also thinks that, but also incessantly doubts their salvation as part of their temperament? Well, to properly get everything right about believers' baptism, must I baptize them again? And then just do it again in two years? Do you you see what I'm saying? The point I'm trying to make is, if you're going to love people, and if we're going to work charitably with one another, is you have to know the person in front of you. You can't just make policy. 
and not think about people. You can't just hold to truths and not think about people. None of your truth, none of the convictions about what you believe are held in a vacuum. Not a single one. Every single one affects this whole church. Positively or negatively, every single one affects this whole church. Or neutrally, if you just hold it well. That's all I'm saying. Okay? Stand with me for prayer. Father, thank you for baptism. God, help us. We need your help. We just need your help to walk humbly, carefully, wisely, full of love. In Jesus' name, amen.